2: Plushcare.com slash loss Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey.
0: And I'm Robert Diamant.
2: And this is Talk Art.
0: Welcome to Talk Art.
2: How are you today, Robert?
0: Today, Russell, I am feeling like an ancient manuscript.
2: Okay, elaborate. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, like in <laughs> <Yeah>. fancy language. <laughs> In fancy language, I'm mm. feeling like a palimpsest, which is, um, which is actually a manuscript or a piece of writing, which has had kind of older writing, maybe like hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. And then it's been erased, perhaps. And then new writing has been placed on top. But you kind of have the echo of the earlier, like effaced writing. And um, Who erased it? Well, I don't know. It could have been you. I would expect because you are. Quite, I would
2: never erase anything that's four hundred years old. Trust me, and then write on rebellious. it again. rebellious,
0: um, <laughs> but today's guest's work. The reason I am feeling this way is because mm. today's guest's work has, over the past kind of few decades. Uh, evolved into something a bit like a palimpsest in the sense of adding taking away within their paintings and the surface I feel like has become more and more and more important and the kind of layers and history within the making and often the works can take many years to be created and to come to fruition and I was first familiar with the work when I was really young when I was about 25 and um Back then, he was making work that was kind of more like figurative in in a way, not not like realist, but kind of uh, with figures, and often like illuminated kind of figures. And there was this kind of luminous, um, incredible use of light and uh, t- and still texture actually which is what where the works have kind of gone to but um I also feel like he's been a kind of constant through my journey in the art world and I know that he's inspired so many young artists oh, yeah. who, who are now not so young actually they're probably like more like mid-career artists but um I know that he, he he's been both a kind of educator an ally a friend to so many painters particularly at a time when painting wasn't as popular, it kind of fell out of favour at one point in a way. And I think he's always been a real champion for painting and has encouraged so many people, like literally I could name about 30 artists that will quote his name to me over the years. And um, he's someone that we've both wanted to have on the show for years and I'm glad we finally made it Um, and we're doing this show now. So we would like to welcome to talk art,
1: Tim Stoner.
2: Stoner.
1: (laughs) Hi, Tim. Hello. That was... That was an amazing intro. Um <laughs> windows. How can I follow <laughs> up that? I mean, you know, it's um, you, you kind of said it all there. I, <laughs> I'm 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 kind of knocked out.
2: Should we just oh. go to our final questions then? <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, anyway, people, thanks for listening. Thank you, yeah, art highs favourite colour, bye. The
0: thing is, um, Tim, it's true, because I feel like you've inspired so many people, and I don't really know if that's like acknowledged or not at the moment, but I, I, I'm i really conscious of it. There's so many painters that will, like, even recently we interviewed Pam Evelyn, and Pam was talking about you, and I've worked in the past with David Bryan-Smith, and David always spoke about you, and I could just keep going. Like, there's so many people that, that love your work, and I feel like you've been a real champion and um kind of propelled people forwards in their painting how do you feel about that statement
1: wow I mean first of all I'm really flattered because um you know to to hear my names mentioned in a nice (laughs) way um look I, I I I really think that the whole the whole life that you have being an artist you know and teaching and this sort of weird generational thing, you know, that you're one minute you're young and everyone's in front of you and then you're kind of middle-aged and there's loads of people behind you. But you're part of this conversation that actually you realise isn't just about the living. (laughs) You know, you can have a conversation with Giotto and he's been dead for 700 years. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that the legacy, I mean, I, I really enjoyed teaching when I did it. I don't, I don't teach anymore. But I think um, having studied in Europe as well and seen the difference in what it means to be in that conversation and how that conversation works and the, the way that the hierarchies are a little bit different. I think I think that's sort of really interesting and I mean actually I talked to a lot of younger painters at the moment and I think that's for two reasons one because I think there's a lot of very good painting going on actually particularly in London it's kind of like wow mm. and then also because like you want to stay in the loop you know I don't just want to be some I don't play golf, right? You know, I'm not that kind <laughs> of guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of interested in, like, what's going on out there and whether it's people who are still at college or people who have just left. I think it's it's good to... Uh, or painters... I mean, I was talking to Basil Beattie the other evening and, you know, he's 88. And, you know, that I, massive respect for that guy. And I think that... You know, it's like painting. You're you're just so lucky to be alive in the moment and and be able to have those conversations and make a painting.
2: Why do you think there is a uh, a lot of good painting going on right now?
1: I'll tell you what, Russell. It's really weird. Um, I remember when I was in my twenties and there was like a real kind of crisis around this. You know. I was, I was thinking earlier, like, who were the biggest artists when I was in my 20s, and there were people like Barbara Kruger, and, you know, and people who are good artists. I mean, people who taught me, like Dan Graham, um, who hated painting, I mean, like, like a lunatic, frankly. But I, I remember having to fight against something in the 90s. You know, I don't think it's like that now, I think it's much more open. I think people can be coming from things at many different angles, you you know, I mean I think I think there's a different conceptual outlook now than there was then because you had to have a kind of level of rigour then. I mean, particularly if you're sort of having a argument with someone like Dan Graham. Um, but for me, I you know, as you know, I, I decided to go and study in the Netherlands. Um, when I was in my sort of mid-late 20s, because I wasn't a YBA artist.
2: Did you want to be, or did you feel n- like you, you were on a periphery of it? Or-
1: no, I, I just I just it just wasn't me. I mean, I, 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 I think there was some really good artists in the YBA thing, you know, and, and there were people who were kind of dragged into it that I'd studied at the Royal College with, like Chris O'Feely. And, you know, Chris is a serious he's got the most insane work ethic I've ever come across frankly so I didn't I didn't have anything against it in that way I just wasn't wanting to make art in in that framework and you know what was really funny was that when I went to the Netherlands everyone only talked to me about Yba <laughs> I mean I remember my my first tutorial with Luke times and he just wouldn't shut up about it and I just kind of thought look piss off I came here to get away from that. And, and I you, suppose- you were a bit
0: younger than that as well, weren't you? Because if you think of like, well, uh, I no, feel like, not really. weren't you like 1970 were you
1: born? Yeah, but I mean like Darren Armand's younger than me and oh, um, there's one or two others and I mean, I suppose the the, the, the clue's in the name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I'm an OBA. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but um, but was Nick Toymans a, a fan of it or was he talking about it in a negative way?
1: Oh, n- uh, ooh, I don't want to speak for Luke. That's okay. dangerous. <laughs> That's um, dangerous.
2: <laughs> but, but amazing that it was part of the conversation that people were so aware of it as a movement well, that it Emma was Dexter up for discussion. Emma came
1: over and did a talk at the Reichs Academy and I was just looked at her like, oh, please don't do this.
2: Who, who, who was Emma it? Dexter, Emma Dexter, who Hager. was the
1: curator at the ICA. And Luke was sort of heckling quite a lot. <laughs> um <laughs> and it all kind of got a bit out of control like most things that the Reichscast me did. <laughs> um, no, I, I sort of felt like there's this René Daniels painting called Mr. North Mr. North Sea, and I sort of felt like that. I wasn't really Dutch and I wasn't really kind of English at that point. And when I came back here, everyone said my paintings looked really Dutch and everyone in Holland thought my paintings look really English. But, but they didn't realise at the time that I was only part of my plan which was that I wanted to live in the three places where, you know, painting kind of came from, and that included Spain and Italy. So I was only kind of halfway there at that point. Wow.
2: When did you make that <laughs> – what age did you make that decision to know that that was geographically how you were going to position yourself?
1: Oh, that's, that's a question for the psychologist well, chair, I, Well, I mean, it? it's, it's
2: quite, it's quite uh, an, an incredible insight to have at an early age that you're like, I want to straddle – these yeah. three locations i don't think we've ever talked to anyone who's ever thought about that from such a young age
1: well i, I look as you know russell i i grew up in Leytonstone stone and mm-hmm. essex it, boy yeah well i know and I, I was born well, in london essex borders but yeah, 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 yeah but no 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 i am an essex boy and good good we've had this conversation before yeah i i remembered you know art schools used to be full of the weird kids that didn't fit in right mm. now they're full of the rich kids but what I loved in the old days was whether the person was from Grimsby or Eton, you know, they were always the weird kid. <laughs> and and art schools were a place where all the weirdos met each other. And I was probably like that. You know, I didn't used to kind of go out and, and be a teenager. I used to sit in my bedroom and kind of memorise Monet paintings and You know, do I mean, I was, you know, I was obsessed with painting and I kind of, and I even used to do paintings of like Spanish mountainscapes in my bedroom in Leytonstone. Mm. I mean, I don't know know what that was all about, but um, I I kind of, by looking at art history, realized that at least within European painting, which is kind of, you know, let's face it, where where I am, and I love American painting and I love art now that's made all over the world but at that time because I was looking so specifically you know painting from I don't know like the middle ages up until the 19th century you couldn't avoid Rome, Amsterdam and Madrid. Where and was I you thought, getting
2: the information from? Was it books from the library? I mean and this is like the 80s is it? This is the early 80s? Yeah this
1: is this is yeah early mid early, 80s yeah um well it's weird I mean I come from a sort of quiet. My family aren't art people. Like My dad ran a union with, you know, Alan Johnson. And my mum ran a women's refuge. And my sister Lucy, she she's just got back from Syria. She's, like, been an aid worker out there.
2: Oh, my God.
1: And so, like, I'm the... I'm le petit bourgeoisie, you know. I'm like the, you know, I'm like the, like oh, here he comes. <laughs> yeah. um, I could argue that one on your behalf though, because I feel like
0: you're you're um you're feeding our like need for cultural kind of uh, input. So it's still just as valid, I think. As, uh, <laughs> it's like still humanitarian, just in a different way, because you're you're yeah. keeping our souls alive, which is just as important sometimes.
1: I mean, I I haven't got any kind of mad ideas about what art can do, because when you have a family like that (laughs) and, you know, the the topics are strikes, woman beaters and death, Mm. it's like, right, I know that making this painting isn't (laughs) going to change that. And I mean, look, you know, Guernica is a brilliant painting. It's my favourite painting of the 20th century. But let's face it, if the aim of Guernica was to stop war, it failed.
0: It didn't work, yeah. No,
1: but that doesn't mean any, that, that, that doesn't, that's not a problem for Guernica, it's a problem for humanity. You know? yeah.
2: <laughs> how did you find art then? How did, how did that come into your life? Um, and, and, and was a viable option for you to think I can make a career at this?
1: I thought, I thought about this really a lot. I think I said to you in a message that when I went to school, I was the only person doing art. I had this brilliant art teacher, Kath, Kath Trotter, at Leighton Boys School, and uh, she kind of took me under her wing. And one day the careers advisor came in and I said, I want to be an artist, you know, and he said, can you write? And I said, yeah. And he said, "Uh, can you carve? And I was like, yeah. And he said, right, you should be a tombstone carver. And it was like that was the extent of like expectations from somebody from a kind of working class background that mm. that that's what they would do and you know I'm, I'm sure in more salubrious schools than the one that I went to they wouldn't be told to do that but you had to kind of fight with it and I, I even had people in my family calling me a class traitor for wanting to do art you know and some of them worked at Falls in Dagenham and I kind of thought well I mean, I remember I remember one of them saying, why do you want to be an artist? Nobody cares what you're doing until you're dead. And I said, well, why do you want to put windscreens in cars for 40 years, you know? And I wasn't being a chippy snob about it. I was just, like, basically growing up, having to fight to say, look, this is what I want to do, and if you don't like it, sling your hook. <laughs> so I, I think part of it came out of that, and... You know, I mean, I re- I remember I remember lots of hostility, and I just think that made me because of my temperament, kind of want it maybe a little bit more. And also, art oh, was this kind of weird thing, isn't it? It's like I love music; like I, I'm a, I'm probably more obsessed with music than, than painting, and I and I listen to loads of music podcasts and. I never picked an instrument up because I never wanted music to be about me. I wanted to enjoy it, right? I didn't want my authorship to be conflated with my love for music. But with art, I just made that decision. Yeah, you know, it's all about me now.
2: <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, that's how I feel about art. Is it? I always yeah. get and Rob, we always get asked like, "Do you want to make art?" And it's like, no. Oh, I love artists and my heroes are totally on pedestals, and I don't ever want to feel like I'm like in competition or in some sort of discourse with an artist or like a visual artist. Mm-hmm. I, I love to keep them. Set- and the wonder
0: not... of it. I think that encourages the wonder as well. Yeah. Like not, cause I can't even really draw, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's so magical somehow.
1: Well, it, it is. I mean, I went to a talk John Curran did very early on at the Royal college. Um, and he was talking about um, sort of comparing his age to Picasso. It was actually really funny. Sort of like going, Oh God, he was, 32 when he did that, and now I'm 33, sort of thing. And you know, I saw the Mirandi show the other day, which is just absolutely incredible. I think it might have finished, and um i was so relieved that he was like 70 and stuff like that i was like oh thanks mate i've got <laughs> time i've got cause, time yeah because yeah i used to do that with my career yeah <laughs> i used to go like well oh, that
2: actor's 30 and they're doing that and i'm i'm 20 i'm sorry i've got 10 years i've got 10 years yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean it's all right. It's all right. Chill, chill 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 just keep going keep going whereas <laughs> I, I
0: i had like a a 20 year old crisis when i turned 20 i thought i was finished because I, I was making pop music and that was the age and i literally oh had a breakdown God. at the age of 20 thinking i'd failed because i've been doing it since i was 13 isn't
1: that tragic that's really that's that's too much pressure i mean (laughs) i always kind of thought right you know let's give it till you're 50 and (laughs) i mean part of my thing as well was that um i sort of i sort of had a bit of a meltdown with all of that in my um early 30s really um and i pissed off and moved up a mountain in spain and Um, I remember going to an opening at a gallery whose name I won't mention but you know who you are mate and uh, one of London's biggest gallerists and he poked me in the chest and he said you, you've disappeared, you're finished, you're over and I had to go back up my mountain in Spain which you know you could hear sheep bleating outside the door and really really work through it and Um, And I did that for the best part of 20 years. And, of course, everybody thought I was completely bonkers. People that I worked with at the time were like, you know, you can't do that. And I just, the more that people told me that I couldn't do it, the more I was determined to do it. And, yeah, I mean, in terms of what you said about a career, doing something like that is not a good career move. But as far as I'm concerned...
2: But why? No, why, why would that not be a good career? If you're making the work and the work is getting out there in the world, why would it matter where you're located?
1: I don't... I, <laughs> well, the one, the work wasn't getting out there in the world oh, at the right. time um, and there was no social media. And I couldn't even get a telephone line installed because the Spanish telephone company just really couldn't be bothered to do it in rural <laughs> Andalusia. Um, I think they were installing telephone lines in Guatemala, but they wouldn't put them on the bit of Spain where I lived. And I mean, the isolation was kind of bonkers. And, you know, I, I, my studio is sort of 100 metres away from where David Bomberg painted. And you imagine what it was like for him in kind of like, you know, the 30s and the 50s mm. when he painted who, yeah. so who was David Bomberg then? I've been looking at
0: his painting a lot recently. David Bomberg of is now
1: an incredibly sought-after artist, and um, he's really one of the trailblazers of of British figurative painting. He started off as a vorticist and he was at the Slade, um, but he got thrown out for hitting a tutor with a pallet. And he was a it was a street fighting Cockney. Um, he was one of the he was one of the I think they're called the Whitechapel boys, um, Mark Gertler, him and I can't remember who the other one was, but they, they used to fly, fight the black shirts. Um, they were Jewish and they used to knock around Brick Lane having sort of fist fights and then he'd go to studio and paint. And he ended up in southern Spain and um, I actually know people that that, that knew him. Um, one guy told me that he used to carry Bomberg's paintings on the back of his donkey for him. Wow! And people used to come out of their shops in Ronda and <clears throat> clap the donkeys as they went past. No way! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's what you call art transport. <laughs> yeah.
2: So you Wait. so you were located. Sort of, what were you going to say, Rob?
0: No, I was going to say. Is, so is, is Bomberg one of the reasons you thought of Andalusia? Like, because I know that this place, Ronda became such an important kind of place for you. But what, what was it that drew you there? I'm so fascinated. Were there like Spanish painters as well? Or? Well, you
1: know, it's a really weird thing, Robert, that actually if you look at the history of painting, what's peculiar about Spain is it doesn't really have a history of landscape painting. Yeah. There are great landscapes by El Greco. El Greco, of course, being the Greek, being a giddy like me, a foreigner, Um <laughs> And Spanish landscape painting itself, I don't, I mean, I've seen some really good Miro's landscapes and some Picasso landscapes, but all the people that have been going there since the 18th century and doing paintings of the Sierra de Ronda and Andalusia, they're all like Scottish and English. And I think Leonora Carrington went down there, but she was sort of near a Granada, um, Bomberg, um, Miles Richmond, who's was, who was a brilliant painter. Um, there's, there's, and I've got friends there at the moment. Um, and I, I, it's, it's just a really sort of amazing landscape. It's like, you know, where the Italian landscape is very rolling and pastoral and Spanish landscape looks like it's just been smashed to bits. And it turns out that's the truth. When Africa hit the European continent, the bit of Spain where I live just kind of got the impact and it's, it's like kind of splintered rock. So it's a it's a fascinating place to to live and to to see things, and the light is extraordinary.
2: How, how long were you there then? Twenty? How long?
1: Did you say twenty <laughs> well, years? No. Well, I've been twenty years on and off, but wow. Yeah, there was that little thing that happened called Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah you're, you're an
2: artist; has definitely been affected by Brexit.
1: You know what, Russell? It's like, I mean, everyone's got an opinion on it and it's not for me to want to change anybody's mind. You know, everyone's welcome to their own opinion. But for me, it was like something got kind of stolen from me. Mm-hmm. You know, going from my bedroom in Leighton Stone, painting Spanish mountains out of my imagination, then living in them. And one, one of the reasons... Robert mentioned my earlier work was that I, when I first went there I tried to continue with that work and then one day I opened the door and there's this furnace of bright light where you it's just white and then gradually you start seeing the shapes of the mountains and everything and you hear the birds song and you and you think god if i could get 1% of that in a painting it would be really good. And why am I trying to do what I was doing in Bethnal Green in Rhonda? Well, ironically, I'm in Bethnal Green now, and I'm painting Rhonda. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. But um, how
2: did you? How did you stay focused? You, you were, It was quite a solitary practice you had. How did you? What was your routine? How did, did you have like a nine to five? What were your rules you set for yourself to kind of keep that? Focus. If you're feeling cut off from everyone and people at home are saying you're missing from the art world, how do you and did you maintain your practice?
1: Uh, That's a brilliant question because, you know, I think most painters that will be listening to this podcast will um, realise and know that painting is like a sort of weird prison sentence anyway. And that you know, it's one of the most individualistic and most is isolatory, yes, yes. Uh, um, endeavors that there is in the world. And um, I never have been a nine to five person. I think if you can have all the talent in the world, but if you can't stand your own company, you can't be an artist. And I, you know, me being me, I just sort of really wanted to test it. Um, and you know what? I destroyed most of the work that I'm, some paintings I wish I hadn't had destroyed. Lots and lots of paintings. I mean, I, I, I then worked in the studio in Marbella for about four or five years down on the coast. And I used to walk along the beach to get to it. And it was like ridiculously nice. Um, so that, that, kind of made it a little bit easier. Um, But all of that work ended up being destroyed. I, I wasn't painting to make art objects. I wasn't painting to satisfy a desire for having a painting on the wall. I was trying to satisfy playing out all of the potential applications and possibilities of both how I was experiencing and seeing the world, but also how I was imagining it. And, you know, most of the time you miss the target. And the worst thing actually is that sometimes you hit it and you don't see it. And one of the things that was really good in the end was that I was painting in here in Bethnal Green and then I'd leave paintings, go to Spain for like six months or a year. And when I came back, I realised that everything that was in the studio was finished. Whereas if I'd have just stayed here, I'd have just carried and painted over it. So there was this weird, weird synchronicity that came out of this.
2: It's quite a conceptual practice you had for a while then, where it was the doing, it wasn't the end product, the process.
1: I, I You know, it's funny because I sort of – one of the things – I mean, as I say, I don't teach now, but one of the things that I noticed, particularly – Around conversations in painting schools, is there isn't a lot of conversation about conceptual art now? I'm not a conceptual artist, and I don't have any ambition to be a conceptual artist. But having been taught by people, you know, who you know, people who used to come into the Rights Academy, you know, I mean, the kind of names were ridiculous: Pistoletto, Joan Jonas, Dan Graham. Um, Luke was quite good with all of that but he never talks about that to painting students but what was imbued in you from being in that kind of environment was this idea that even if you didn't want to make art like that you had to have some kind of concept of the conceptual got it which i did and i i mean i had so many rows with dan graham it was kind of it was kind of comedic. He'd he'd kind of yell at me that painting was just camouflage. And I mean, for me, that was like the most mind blowing comment that I ever heard. And it came from somebody who like in every atom of their body hated painting, but it made me go and look at kind of dazzle art, which is like um, ship design camouflage and, you know, and there's all this sort of amazing. Like you think, yeah, you're painting his camouflage. Although when I said to him that his glass well, sculptures look like corporate foyers, he blew up. Um. <laughs> oh my God. How did you? How did you get in there? What was the
2: process of coming from Leytonstone and going to art school in Amsterdam at the, one of the best art schools
1: in the globe? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it was because when I was at the Royal College, I did two things. One was. Um, a sort of transfer and I went to Lisbon and I'd studied at the Arco art academy there for a little bit. And that was quite funny because A. R. Penk was running the painting class and he threw me out of it. <laughs> Which I don't know, I never knew why. Um, and then I went to Berlin on an Erasmus and I walked into the class of Hudika and Kobling and I just thought, really like your paintings, but like every student in here is like making your work. So I was with a friend and we just got on train and went to Dresden and not, didn't stop traveling. <laughs> so I, so, so I, so I'd already kind of done that. And when I left the Royal College, I'd kind of gone round Europe and gone to all the museums and done really what I wish I'd have done before I went to the Royal College. And then a few people that I knew applied to the Rights Academy. And I thought, I'm going to give it a go. And there's another program there called the Ateliers Program, and I thought, well, I'll give them both a shot. And I got an interview at the Rites Academy, <laughs> and I was actually living in southern Spain at the time. Don't, it sounds mad now, and I think I went to Morocco, and I sort of phoned home, and they went, "You've got to be in Amsterdam." <laughs> wow. All right, okay, I'll go. Um, you just
2: mentioned the Erasmus. That was that's a, it doesn't exist anymore because of no, Brexit, but that is uh, right. an art exchange. Thing where we would have yeah. uh, students here and then you would be able to travel and it was a grant, wasn't it? That's... Yeah, yeah, no.
1: Well, it was a really, really important part of what being within the EU meant, really. Mm. Um, you know, it what it isn't just all about trade as an exchange. It's about the exchange of ideas. And, mm. you know, when you think, you know, all the way back to the 16th century, you know, like, Thomas More was having conversations with Erasmus, so, you know... And it, Holbein it, was,
2: wasn't Hans yeah, Holbein? Exactly him, the, yeah, exactly.
1: All the great British mm. painters of royalty are all Flemish or German or Swiss. It's true. It's so true. Um, and so for me, I, I mean, it was a kind of... It felt like a kind of personal wound when all that happened. And I remembered, I remembered phoning a lawyer up and him telling me... Because I went to Spain during the second lockdown... Because as soon as the first lockdown ended, I thought, right, not having any more of this. So I I got on a plane. I went to Spain. And, you know, in Spain, everybody was so obedient to it. I I mean, I don't know if it was because, you know, because of the Franco period, people just do what they're told. But they really, really stuck by the rules. And, I mean, my next door neighbor was in the massive field, like half a kilometer from anybody wearing a mask. And it was kind of almost, like, hilarious. But... Um, I went there and I, I stuck out the, the second lockdown in Spain and um, worked on some paintings there. And um, I remembered phoning this lawyer and him saying, well, Mr Stoney, you're an illegal immigrant now. I was kind of like, what? <laughs> it's sort of right. Like, you don't... I mean, obviously, I don't think of myself as a, you know, white english man as being an illegal immigrant but suddenly that's what i what i was and so i i I tried to see the funny side of it because i kind of got all the anger out of the way before i won't go on about that because it was horrible and i tried to sort of keep it light but it's still you know niggling away at me and i think that What's kind of strange for me now is that, you know, I have a load of unfinished paintings in my studio in Spain. Some of them like three by four metres. I mean, I might go back and decide that they're finished. But I'm making paintings still about Spain here in London. And you go through this really weird process because when you're in the place, it's like you're enveloped by your subject matter. When you leave it, you sort of miss it, and then there's this sort of weird thing of having nostalgia for it, Mm. and then there's this other thing that creeps up on you, which is a kind of weird resentment about your subject matter being physically taken away from you. So the paintings are now coming out of this really... Fractious place, which is kind of weird because I think they're getting better. <laughs> so I don't know whether Brexit was a good thing. A good thing or not. So you're working from attention
0: it, yeah? Uh,
2: memory, imagination, but are you also working from paintings you've made while you were there, and you're overworking them, or photographs? What, what's what are the sources for your for your sub for your images?
1: It's really complicated, Russell I mean. Um, I, I've been thinking about when I was a teenager making paintings and what I wanted to do then. There's this great Hopper quote. I can't say it verbatim, but he said something like, when you're a mature artist, you're a mature painter, you're more like the artist you were as a teenager than the one that was corrupted by art school. And I realised that there was this sort of process of catharsis that, you know, luckily when I left the Royal College, I did things like, I, I did a community arts project, voluntary work in a housing estate in Walthamstow, doing a mosaic. Um, and I, I sort of, I cut the link. Um, and I think when I went to Spain, I really severed it. But weirdly, when you're a painter, things are cyclic. And what happened was that things, things were becoming repeated from a younger part of me. Mm. And I had to kind of decide whether to embrace them or avoid them. So in terms of your question, there were things like, I always had this idea that I'd like to just have canvases on the wall and pick up a brush and paint without anything. You know, to me, that would be like the ultimate you know, like the way that Joe Mitchell does it or Lee Krasner, you know, they're just so epic at that. Um, And, you know, because I think that painting is about this weird struggle of finding um, liberation within a kind of lots of rules and limitations. And so I really wanted to feel more liberated. So what I did, and this comes back to a conversation that I had, a lot of the Reichs Academy. And at the Reichs Academy, the the conversation in the painting school was predominantly like this, that there were two types of painting, that you either did that kind of painting where you had this sort of free energy to just apply yourself, which in the 90s did look kind of problematic as well. Or what you did, like somebody like Timons, maybe Malena Dumas, Etc., is you make a template, you make a kind of model, you get everything where you want it in this by, by model, I mean drawing or plan or watercolor or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you replicate that, right? So there's these two modes of activity one is the artist as a replicator of something, and the other is as a kind of imaginary sort of drifter. And for me, I've always been kind of in between those two things. I find the idea of copying myself worse than the idea of me copying anyone else or of anyone else copying me. So you I don't mean, have I a just...
2: sketchbook then? You just <clears throat> oh, I, I str- have.
1: Oh, oh. oh, I since I came back um, from Spain two years ago,
2: yeah,
1: I've made three hundred works on paper, um, paintings on paper mainly, and they're like a kind of archive for me and the archive is more interesting when it becomes cerebral rather than when I'm standing there holding a thing in front of me and then trying to replicate it and at the beginning I will kind of like be doing that but when you leave something and then go back to it and then that happens several times and then your painting without that thing and your familiarity with it is much more kind of psychological Mm. then I think the painting opens up in a completely different way and the process of removing paint and returning back to an earlier version of oneself the the idea of kind of eviscerating bits of the painting and playing this thing where you're sort of adding and subtracting in the mm-hmm. painting. It enriches that idea of that exploration, I think.
0: I, I was thinking about that a minute ago, about how you were talking about all those paintings that you'd made in Spain, and then you destroyed them all. But how, even though you have destroyed them all, I feel like they must still be within you. Yeah. Like there's some kind of like imprint Log. in your brain that Log, like you... Yeah. And also you might almost... Long for them somehow because you know they've gone and therefore they reappear in other works. And that's really like profoundly like exciting somehow I find it really like I don't know there's something quite sort of magical and fucked up about it well
1: like, I, I work in a studio in on the other side of London as well where I live oh yeah
0: can we moment talk moment. about that so you've got one in Stockwell and one in Bethmore Green you're like south and east what is that yeah, about um, I saw I, that I, earlier
1: you know, my life is just a little bit kind of mad um <laughs> is it because well, you I, need the distance that you need to leave
2: paintings alone and go somewhere else and then come back yeah
1: yeah that's exactly it and and, and there I wake up with them which is like, I, I can't remember if I've ever done that before. And it's really intense, like, when you wake up. And the thing is, it's, it's a, the smaller studio, and I've actually got three paintings in there that are massive. And one of them I started in 2009 in Marbella, um, <laughs> and it sort of followed me around. And I removed a layer of paint off of it recently, and a face was there. For the huh. incarnation of an earlier painting. And it was kind of like it's archaeological, like a dig. <laughs> like yeah, you like all yeah, these I artifacts felt, of your past. Something like appearing. that Tony Robinson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Time hunt or whatever. Is that yeah, what it's called? Yeah, time, yeah. time team. Yeah. Yeah. Time team. That's um, it. I, I,
1: and I, I kind of sat for ages with that. And I, you know, what I realized was that there's these weird things that happen where. You put things in a new version of a painting where you didn't realize you'd put them before because that's just the way you're inclined. And when you go backwards and you see that, it reaffirms that. But also, my kind of mad thing that I'm always talking to people about is that I think paintings are time machines. Like, I don't want to sound like some kind of like lunatic, but. Um, they are in every sense of the word time machines. You know, when you see, you know, a Holbein painting um, of, mm. you know, Thomas More or whatever, it's like it is the nearest you're going to get to that character of that person. You know, all this, all the CGI in the world and all the cinematography of all the greatest directors... And the hand is involved in it, you know. And, you know, my my favourite thing said about this was by Jakob Bronowski, and he said, you know, the hand is the cutting edge of the mind. And, and, I, I, and I think if you, whether you're in the Scriveni Chapel in Padua looking at the Giotto frescoes, or whether you're, you know, looking at a Dekunin painting, or, you know, like I was saying about the Krasner. Paintings, you know, and that show that they had that was amazing. It, that's what it's really about, and they they are like time machines. But all I'm doing is that I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, doing a dissection of my own paintings over this it's long It's an period. autopsy,
2: isn't it? In some ways. it yeah. is a
1: painted autopsy. Yeah, and going back to this earlier version of myself that that weirdly I didn't most of the time. I'll remove a bit of painting and the color that's better than the one that I would have thought of putting there on top is, is there. And it's like playing this weird game with accident and chance, but an accident and a chance that you created for yourself on the other side of Europe 10 years earlier. So How, how do you know
2: to let them go then when you're working on some of these God. things for as long as like 12 years, how do you know when it's ready to release from the studio? To go out and be collected?
1: I do you know what? The thing about painting, I've talked to so many painters about this, because I think finishing a painting is like, it's like really, it's really like the thing that all painters kind of like walk around, sort of agonizing over. And I really wish I was like those guys like Edward Hopper, um or 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 Times or um, Alex Katz or Avigdor Rika who know that they're going to do it in one go and when they walk away from the canvas that's it and if it's not finished it goes in the bin and they do it again the next day Right? so they've kind of got a system that kind of protects them for that for me it's like a completely different ball game Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, so, I, 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 two things happen. One, I try and sell myself the idea that a painting might be finished, right? And the thing is... The longer you do it and the more you become self aware and the more you look at your own work. Which can cloud your judgment. But the more that you do that, the less you can bullshit yourself into believing that something's finished. And I always start off with that Leonardo thing. Things aren't um things are never finished, they're just abandoned or things just left. You know, I think he said something like that. So I, I, I try that one and then the thing sits there and sits. And I there were two paintings in my other studio that I thought were finished and I got them out the other day and I just called myself a coward. And I thought, right, there's about another five years going on
2: longest What's the longest you've worked on a painting?
1: I think there's probably it depends i mean like there was one painting that i did that i started in 2007 i rolled it up in 2010 it went on the top of my storage shelf for 10 years and when i took it down i finished it and it was the same painting but finished right but there was like 10 years sort of settling down period where like my ego and my authorship had to be kind of like completely removed from this thing mm. for me to be able to see it with a level of clarity. Mm. Um, other times there are paintings that are always around you, always kind of making your life a pain in the ass. And there's paintings are so weird. I mean there's some paintings that just literally paint themselves and you think right now I've nailed it and you haven't right that'll be like one in ten paintings and then there'll be the main group of them that are a bit well it is difficult end of but you kind of you kind of navigate it with all of the skill sets and things that you've got but that won't finish the painting what will finish the painting is usually something that you're not sure about. I mean, um, Lucian Freud used to say, you know, that he he said you slave over a painting for months and years and then you suddenly turn a corner and it's there. I always thought that was a really brilliant way of putting it. Um, but but then you feel that, this but
2: you've, you're saying you don't feel that, you have to, you have to <laughs> I, I, bullshit yourself I, that you feel that, or you if do. I'm
1: lucky that does happen, but right. they all finish themselves in different ways, I mean I, there's a story of Joshua Reynolds going to I've never been a Joshua Reynolds fan and when I heard this story I just thought, you thug, he bought a Titian painting. And no, it's so, Rubens,
2: that was Rubens.
1: Well, Wasn't I was it? I was told it was Rubens, but somebody then recently said to me that it was that it was Reynolds. Oh, okay. And I carry always on, thought it was on. Rubens. The story. I love the this painting story in, so much. in Antwerp, yeah. But um, somebody said recently to me that I, I was wrong. So I hope you are right. Um, but yeah, the, the, the painting was scraped back so that the artist could understand how Titian had manufactured the painting. And yeah, um, he bought it. He
2: bought it and flayed it. petition painting just to see the process of it so he could see how it was made which is just such a uh, what's the I mean what's the word
1: I just I can't even find a word for that but it's like that Japanese collector who wants to be cremated with his Van Gogh you know Um, what he wants
2: to burn the painting with it
1: yeah they had to change the law in Japan so that he didn't do it
2: (gasps) wow i
0: would never heard of that yeah that's mental he's
1: like a billionaire and people people get like that about paintings, you know. I mean, it's 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 a kind of addiction, isn't it? It's an yes. addiction for you guys as much as it is for me, Ben, just in a different way. I'm just the supplier. <laughs> <laughs> you're the dealer. Yeah, but you're, yeah you're giving us yeah. our hit.
2: There's an amazing essay on your website by Martin Herbert. It's incredibly beautiful, and mm. there is there is a section in it where he says that the artist has to make mistakes or change his mind in order to create something to dig into to generate a rich loam for his spade and what we're talking about the, these are a series of mistakes i guess good mistakes and changing your mind but that is the process that you've made for yourself you could never do a painting in one sitting and let it go could you
1: um i do you know sometimes i try and it's complicated because you know i am quite good at doing that kind of painting I mean you don't paint every day for thirty seven years and not have certain a box of tricks here and there. And you know, I I my problem is that I probably got too many boxes with too many tricks. So I can do that kind of painting, and I have actually kept paintings that I've made like that, particularly when I was a student in the Netherlands. Um, but it, there's something about it that never really satisfied me. And I think, you know, the people that do that, they do it for the right reasons and it's their territory. And I'm not interested in sort of helping anyone else out in their territory. I'm kind of about my territory. And my territory is just like full of kind of bananas situations with paintings where, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm getting stuff now to find out how I can literally return the painting to bare canvas so that I can have these really claggy, overworked kind of bits that have driven me mad next to kind of like nothing. And, you know, I'm really about those extremes at the moment between the kind of the viscerality of that. And the thing about Martin is that he was the person, I mean, I've talked to Martin for more than 20 years, you know, he's been one of the most important people I've spoken to about my work. And Martin was really the person that basically sort of said to me, look, you're, you're painting this landscape, right? But actually what you're also doing is that you're making a landscape on the painting, that is made in the same way as the landscape. And if you think about particularly the landscape where I live in Spain, the way that it's been, you know, carved up and farmed and, you know, the way agriculture works on it. And there's loads of vineyards where I live, um, olive trees everywhere. Um, And then you think about painting. You start realizing that making a paint of that place isn't just about making a depiction about it. Mm. It's about having those layers of and that richness. And And also, my my, my neighbours, right? I mean, Spanish people in general, I've found they really understand where their food comes from. They're not like, you know, they're not like English people who think that a chicken is something you find in a bargain bucket. They like my neighbours grow all of their food, or Mm. farm all of their food and they're really and it really sort of um taught me about the land a bit and you know having a different respect for nature and I think the big change in my life since I did the work that Robert cited at the beginning and through my conversations with Martin is my absolute belief and love of nature which, when I made those early paintings, I had a a very sort of what I would call conceptual, synthetic idea of nature. And I think the paintings had quite a sort of synthetic or conceptual idea of nature, whereas now, yeah, I hope I'm becoming a bit more sensitive.
2: Do you feel like you're back in the art world you know you said you had this guy this dealer prod you in the chest and say you've, you've <laughs> left you're finished do you feel like you've returned and you are part of the discourse and the discussions that are happening now
1: um well first of all i don't conflate the conversations that i have with other artists with the art world i don't believe that the market knows what's going on and it isn't something that particularly interests me i I got into art, like I said, being a teenager looking at books on impressionism and, you know, if somebody had said to me then, what's the art world, i just said, oh, was, wasn't that when Cezanne and Pizarro went for a walk? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the thing is... <laughs> I love that so much. I, I actually think that I, I think that now. It's true. <laughs> and that's why I said I'm becoming more like I was when I was a teenager. Um, so... Look, I, I have lots of conversations with lots of other painters that no one else is party to, and there is a really interesting conversation going on that isn't at the Freeze Art Fair and isn't really represented. And um, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not working with a gallery at the moment, and I'm doing that for so many reasons, and I'm doing that because I, I want to come in the studio and look at what I'm doing with a level of, I use the word clarity before, but ownership, you know, like really living through it. I don't want somebody saying to me, is this, is this painting going to be finished for blah, 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 blah. It's like, look, oh, you know, wow. it's, it's like, it, it, no. <laughs> so I do. The thing life. is
0: you've also, you've also like lived your life like that though. I feel like, I feel like that's, that's the way you make work. You know what I mean? Like you, it's kind of like you, you need that to exist like that that freedom in a sense it's that...
1: totally at odds with the artist's most important preoccupation which is survival um <laughs> yeah
2: is there a worry for survival is there a panic for
1: i i, I do you know because you have about I... a thousand
2: studios everywhere it's like <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, wasn't I, I? I think I read something. I think it was a Duke of Well. No, well, maybe it wasn't the Duke of Wellington. He said a gentleman should never live within his means, and I kind of thought, well, all right. Um, um, so I, I love have that gone. One. And I'm li- writing that one down. <laughs> my mum would be like, "That's you,
2: okay."
0: <laughs> the thing is, though, Tim. Like, I, I, I feel like when Russell says about survival. He's he was obviously talking about kind of like, you know, the fact the studio is expensive, all this Mm. stuff, but on a monetary kind of level in a way. But for you to survive, that's kind of my point. I feel like you have to make work and make art. And that's ever since you've been a teenage lad. Mm. You've like it's your way of existing in the world, isn't it? like to paint, to think about painting, to talk about painting with other painters. It's kind of like that is your survival. So the other stuff's just peripheral in a sense. Oh, it,
1: it, it is. But, you know, like I said, you know, the, the only, I think the only people who probably have the solitude that artists have got are either prisoners or, or monks, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've probably all got quite a lot in common. Um, yeah. I... I the survival thing, it's a complicated one because, you know, I i remember my younger self trying to play a game and do what was expected of me. And I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't where I wanted my life to go. And it meant that certain people who, who had, and I, who I respect, had enabled me with helping me, um, survive weren't going to be appropriate because what I want from painting isn't, look, we live in this world at the moment. I mean, I'll try and get the elephant out of the room. It's a bit like X Factor, right? And it's like, who's this season's kind of contestant? And that's fine, right? But you're not going to get Bob Dylan doing that. And you're not going to get anybody who's, that interest in playing that game. And I, I've been, you know, when I won the ICA Futures in 2001, um, you know, there was a queue of people waiting for work and, you know, and it was a great moment. And I was I was living in Rome, you know. I was going and looking at Caravaggio and I won loads of money. And, I, I you know, I was probably awful. I probably thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and then one day I woke up and I thought I'm not because this thing's kind of drifted away from me and I need to kind of claim it back. And the process of doing that created a lot of problems. And though, I mean, I I remember going into the Royal College and talking to a student. The first thing they said in the morning was, how do I get a gallery? And then I knew that the time was up for me teaching because, you know, when I was at art school, like I said before, it was full of people, whether they were from Eton or, you know... Leighton Stone, there was this brilliant openness and everyone was there because they validated their position through the work that they did. And now it's not like that. It's like you're there because you can pay to be there. And those kids who, like myself at the time, I mean, look, I've been to six art schools. I wouldn't have gone to any if I was a young person now. Mm. And it's a bit of a personal kind of... um, mission for me because I, I I think it's really bad and I think we're going to end up with a very myopic culture if we're not careful because mm-hmm. all the gatekeepers are kind of middle-class men and all the all the artists that are coming out are kind of quite well-off kids and it's like well where are the kids from places like you know Russell?
2: <laughs> Where's the Romford boys? Where yeah, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are yeah. the
1: Romford boys? And I, it does make me really concerned. I mean, I th- I think what Tracy Emin's doing with her academy art school thing is hats off to her. I think that is just phenomenal. If, if you know, thank and God I, she's I was actually doing just that.
0: I was thinking about that, Tim, because um, I've been hanging out a lot with the, A, the students, there's about 10 of them. And then also there's about 11 professional artists, but actually the whole group of those artists, like all 20 odd of them, um, they're just not like what you're talking about. You know, they're they're kind of like, it's like old school Mm. and they're all talking about art every day and critiquing each other's work, but like quite brutally in some, you know, there's quite a lot of emotions running wild at the moment. And it's kind of, it's great because it's passion and they all really love art and actually they are all quite odd human beings like each and every one <laughs> of them you know they're, they're, they're fantastic they're, they yeah. are the weirdos yeah you well, know like, you a, know, like that Radiohead I'm song or about something the weirdos. But <laughs> i know i know but that that's also what what i've always been about like and, and, I, and I love that and I, I i'm i'm really invigorated by that and i don't know it's just, well, Patrick um, it is Helen, lost. He wrote,
1: this, he wrote this article in, I think it was 1973, um, called The Murder of the Art Schools. And what was interesting about it was that generation of people, even people like Paul Huxley, who taught me, bless him, he said, I don't know how you kids um, can paint in this environment. And this was when we got grants. This is when our fees were paid. And this is when we had our own studios. And I, what's really this is this is like the Brexit conundrum thing, right? I'm doing my best work on the back of Brexit being a kind of life wrecker, but suddenly there's loads of really good painters around, and all the art schools are screwed, and I just, I'm, I'm having this real sort of ideological crisis. It's like. do do us humans just need to constantly have something to fight against Mm. to make really good art? Yes. And if we sit on our arses being a bit too comfortable, is that really the problem? And, you know, I'm completely at a loss with it now because it's it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of depoliticised me, which has at least enabled me to think about painting in, in a kind of rather um sort of strange way like kind of fan <laughs> like I'm a fan of nature. I never thought I'd be saying that about myself, even a few years ago. So being devil's advocate then, so
2: if you're not looking for a gallerist you're not looking for a gallery to represent you currently do you have ambitions like places you want to show do you want to show in institutions around the world or are there certain venues or certain things or or conversations you want to be involved in when it comes to exhibiting your work like you want to be seen alongside de Kooning, for example or you want to be seen alongside Lee Krasner in that conversation do you have those ambitions
1: um I, I quite like to be Next to David Bomberg somehow, but okay. you know, the problem with David Bomberg is that he died of malnutrition. And you know, when I see a painting of his go at auction for what 4 million quid, or whatever the other months, and I think of the poor bugger dying of hunger you know, somebody the other day was talking about how the market sorts it all out in the end. And I thought, well, that sorts it out for everyone else, but not the bloody artist, because, you know, he died of malnutrition, and now he's painting to 4 million quid. And there's a kind of injustice in that, that that is a bigger thing than me or what I do. And I've probably got a bit of that because of what I said before about my kind of upbringing and stuff. But um, what's my answer to that question? I think that I, I don't write off working with anyone. I think the issue is is working with people who have a level of empathy and understanding and insight that means that when you talk to them about enabling or positioning your work, that they they kind of get it, and mm-hmm. you are not just a, a a sort of checkbook for them, or they're not just a, a step on a ladder for you. I mean, mm. there's an awful lot of that. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, I, I respect all the people I've worked with because they've all given me opportunities to present my work and I wouldn't say it any other way. But, you know, sometimes I think it's good to believe that, and <laughs> I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but that as an artist, you're ahead of the curators. Like, it's up to them to come round. Like, like, they're not making the art. You know, the big thing that's happened in my lifetime as an artist is the rise of the professional curator. Mm. And just for the record, I just think there's too many of them. <laughs> and, you know, like, I, I, the curators that I like, people like Catherine Lampert, I like people like, you know, um, oh, God, I've been talking too long. What's his name who wrote the Francis Bacon books? Interviews: David Sylvester, um, John Richardson—you know, Richardson. people like that, proper old school people who were about the artist. The thing that's going on now is a lot of curators using the art to prop them up, and it's like, yeah. what are you doing? Like, yeah. knock that off! Like, you don't make the work; it's not about you, and. I'm, I'm just not interested in that and mean and, yeah, and all know box those ticking, people isn't it? are and I, I, if they never it's, ever um, talk to me I, it honestly wouldn't bother me but it's career it's it's it's
0: it's their career essentially and it's like box ticking and, and, and they need to sort of advance themselves within that structure and that's also something having moved here I just feel like we've all stepped off that and I'm so relieved and actually the Turner Contemporary here now has Clary Wallace and Clary's one of the people that I feel actually does really listen to artists mm. has been most people's studios really cares about the artist and she's not it's not really about her I think she's and she's bringing in younger curators that also really care about the art and even talking with them recently I'm really enjoying spending time with them because they're they actually care about art yeah you know what I mean it's like yeah yeah yeah
3: um, yeah. And even
0: Russell and I, I know, I know it's quite pop, you know, the world that we've created in a way, but that's kind of deliberate because it's a way yeah, of reaching, reaching reaching more people, yeah, and I, you know, and, and trying to platform it. But at the same time, we love art and we love I artists, totally get that. I
1: listened to a brilliant BBC podcast with Steve Coogan the other day and he was talking about how success enabled him to do what he wanted to do. And, you know, that's the dream. That's like me saying about standing in front of the canvas without anything and just putting the brush on it and it happening, you know, Mm -hmm. having that idea that, you know, you can have that level of authorship about... Your own life. Um, And obviously, that's an. This comes back to me being kind of le petit (laughs) bourgeoisie. You know, it's just a completely ridiculous luxury. And, you know, people have called it everything. They've called it selfish, they've called it self indulgent, they've called it narcissistic, they call it introspective, stubborn. (laughs) Everything you want. But the thing is, it's like, tell me something creative where somebody hasn't just travelled through the depths of, I mean, yeah. I, I, I rewatched Raging Bull the other night and I mean, Robert De Niro, he's, he's a, he's an artist, you know, like yeah. what he did in that film wasn't just acting and, I, and what I want to do in my painting. It's not just about paint, you know, there's got to be this other layer of stuff and I'm interested in what that all those other layers are, you know, and how mm. deep they can go. And listen, I might not, I might not. People might look at my paintings and go, "Well, he's talking rubbish. I don't see any of it." And that's fine. I mean, I'm not making them for anyone else. That's that's the thing I want to be clear about. I'm only making them for me. And if other people don't get it, tough. <laughs> <laughs> but really, uh,
0: have you have, have you heard of that that book that's just come out by um, Christopher Neve called? Um immortal thoughts no so he i think he's a painter and he, he's obviously written a number of books in the past about art but there's this brand new book it came out last week and it's called um late style in the time of plague and it's all about um I think it's got like 19 artists that he talks about, from like Gwen John to like Michelangelo, Cezanne, um, Bonnard, Mirandi, Poussin, Whoa. and it's all about their last work before they died, and he's wow. he's sort of analysing all of their last moments oh, wow. in their work. So maybe like the last five. There's things the Van Gogh in there that
2: that the crows right. in the field. That was the last one yeah,
0: he I did. I haven't wasn't it? read the whole thing yeah. yet. Yeah, maybe. There's, a, there's a, a
1: famous letter that, um, well, it's, I don't know if it's famous, but there's a letter that <laughs> Suzanne wrote to his son two weeks before he died in 1906. And he said um, to his son, I, I failed miserably. Um, I never did anything interesting with colour. And, you know, the reason I find that interesting and the reason I'm going to check this book out. Is because another part of the conversation about painting is a conversation about scepticism, right? And we live in a world now where if you ask questions, if you're a sceptic, people go, well, oh, that's a bit difficult, or oh, that that's that's not a good way to present yourself. Or oh, that's that's not that's not slick packaging. And it's that world that Bill Hicks described when he said um, if you want to fuck something up, stick a dollar sign next to it. And it's like, you know, the, the world has become Gucci-fied. You know what I mean? And hmm. the thing about that letter that Suzanne wrote, even though probably all the people that own Suzanne's mint surrounding Gucci all the time, um, <laughs> is that he, what he's saying is that he he was doubting himself until two weeks before he died. died. Well. And he was really the most I think he changed art more than anybody even more than Van Gogh actually I think um Cezanne really was the painter that took painting from the, the the 18th century to the 20th 20th century he was the and and, and I always think what would have happened if Cezanne had lived 10 years longer you know because obviously s- sort of cubism started to happen around 1915 14 and you know you had people like Kahnweiler showing Picasso's work, and you just kind of think, God, if only Cezanne had had that extra ten years, like Van Gogh. You know, I mean, we talked, we talked, we talked about survival—the big question. That, I mean, I lived in the Netherlands. He's he's Van Gogh. You know, I mean, he was completely unloved and unwanted. I, I mean, was talking to
2: someone the other day. This really has talking... been a conversation where it was about the the privilege of insecurity as an artist, and she was saying that she. Wow. hates what she does and she's like a humongous star and I won't say names but she she has crippling self-doubt and doesn't think she's good enough but she was able to see it as a privilege that she felt that because it wow. made her work harder and it made her keep going and I guess what you're saying about Suzanne makes me feel like if he, he, he was unaware of what he was doing for art what he was doing what he was doing for art history in general he was in insular with it, and just pushing himself and and at odds with himself to prove to himself, and that's what made him a good artist, and that's what makes good artists. If you ever sit back and go, you know what? I've got this covered. I'm a great actor. I can do anything. I'm a great singer. I'm a great writer. Whatever I do, I I could have a shit and it could sell for this. Then you're (laughs) fucked, aren't you? Whatever level you are, (laughs)
1: Manzoni, right? Then you put it in a can,
2: yeah. But whatever level, whatever level you're at, is like as long as you have, there is a privilege in still needing to prove to yourself that you're worth that. I think there's a good spin on that.
1: Self-worth is, it's a very complicated thing again. Mm. And I, I mean, I, whoever said that to you, I totally agree with, by the Mm -hmm. way. And actually this is what I mean about what's kind of going on at the moment and why I feel more, inclined towards the conversations now than I did say during YBA because this is not a YBA conversation this is kind of what I'm getting at and the thing about the identifying the you know doubt or you know kind of almost (laughs) self-loathing is a valuable part of particularly painters um identity comes back to this thing again of what I was saying about whether you want to make paintings and instruct the painting or whether you want the painting to instruct you and you know like it's the difference between delivering a painting or finding a painting and if you're delivering a painting you can you can have that kind of hardness you know you can go yeah I you know I, I don't have any self-doubt I need to contain that in order to make this kind of process in order to make the painting happen but if you do the other sort of painting where you're trying to find it then you know you've got to be bulletproof because Mm -hmm. it's gonna beat you up and some people just can't deal with that and I mean I'm not sure if I can but I still do it but I think that that's the difference now that I think that there are more painters who are adept at navigating these very complex um, concerns about how to find resolution through a kind of almost chaotic process than having one which is like straight. Streamline, yeah. yeah before, we,
2: streamlined. before we get on to our final questions, I just want to circle back to the people that called you a class traitor and a petty bourgeoisie. <laughs> Have did you win them round in the end? Did these people support you and, and follow your practice? And I guess this I, was friends and family members, was it? Or,
1: uh, Yeah. Um, I, I have no interest even in knowing if I did or didn't. Um, it, it, it's not my domain. That's their um, perception of the world. That's not mine. And it's not my job to convince anybody to think that I won or whatever that might mean um or they lost or that I'm a good painter or I'm not a good painter I I I don't give a monkeys about any of that it's like what I care about is people and I care about I care more about um you know things like being nice now than I did when I was younger um I think, you know, I, 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 kind of, I can kind of see a lot of the things that I did when I was younger and how they kind of got me where I was. And now I sort of, I maybe have a bit more of a kind of platonic view of that. But when I'm in the studio, I'm, I'm completely kind of wrapped up in it. So I, I kind of, I have a sort of structure that allow, just allows me to cope, basically. But if I listen too much about what other people said, particularly in places like the art world or amongst gallerists or critics or whatever, I'd I'd never come in my studio because, you know, it, it hurts, you know, and it's not just me that thinks that I think every artist feels like that because, you know, we do take it personally and we take it personally because we mean what we do if we're really doing it the way that it's meant to be done.
2: You're the best. This has been incredible. So we're going to get to our final questions now. Um, this is going to be really interesting. If you could do an art heist, although you have mentioned Guernica, if you could do an art heist and you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why?
1: Oh, I, well, I, You know what? You mentioned Guernica and I'd only do it just to see how big the vehicle I have to have <laughs> <laughs> to do that with me. Um, I, I'd say what I'm going to reverse it. Right, um, if I uh, the highest would be me being allowed to go and see the paintings in Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. So it would be about you taking me to that rather than me taking the paint because I can't go and see those paintings. No one can. Explain and what this all is. The, the Cave of Forgotten Dreams is by Werner Herzog, who is like my favourite human in the world. And uh, I, l- I love that guy. <laughs> and the film is about the paintings made in these caves in France that were only discovered recently. And the thing that's so amazing about them, apart from the fact that they're, I think, 45,000 years old and the best drawings that you ever see in life, um, is that we don't know where we don't know who made them. We don't know even their kind of racial sort of dynamics. You know, even if they were part um, Neanderthal, we don't know if they were men or women. So they, they kind of they kind of elevated above all of the conversations that we think art is about at the moment. And um, I just think that you know. Would be an amazing thing to see because, um, you know, art existed before society, and you could argue that society was born out of art because mm. before those paintings were made in caves and people were nomadic, um, we didn't have a system where some people worked so that other people could paint, and it was people painting and stopping becoming nomadic and then agrarian culture developing that means we're here today so th- th- those things are the most important pieces of art and I wouldn't take them out of the caves because I couldn't but I'd like to take myself there why I haven't can, really answered why your no, question. One,
2: no no I love that answer and why can <laughs> no one ever visit there is it all just sealed because off
1: because human breath ruins the moisture um, amount of, or, or absorbency of pigments on the walls and wow. soda lights I mean there, there's a There's a cave near me in southern Spain called La Cueva de la Pileta, which has got a painting of a fish that's 25,000 years old. And I go there occasionally and have a little look at this fish. And breathe on it. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, there, He's there's, just there's,
2: to uh, erase it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's your <laughs> practice You're like, erase it you to start again and See what's underneath the fish
1: What's underneath
2: the fish, guys?
1: What's underneath the fish Is another cabin With a painting of a pregnant <laughs> horse But you're not allowed To go and see the pregnant horse Because of that and wow. I want to see the pregnant horse so the film 20, crew went in with home. Werner
2: Herzog and just yeah. documented everything and then they sealed it up well, again they allow, didn't they,
0: they allowed people in there for like two weeks
1: a year yeah you could. You, you to document go, it and then you go you can go if you're really really lucky And but the, I think the film is online I think you can even watch yeah, it no, online. yeah the film's available like and YouTube. I think he made
0: it in he did it with like 3D cameras that's it yeah. so, that, so that you could watch it in you know in 3D yeah. I think wasn't it like 2011 yeah 2020? something
1: like that but you know, it's also got his very brilliant, sort mm. of, dry voice oh, narrating yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think it's incredible. And it, it, you know, you immediately think of that thing Picasso said when he saw the apparently we, we never know if these stories are true when he saw the paintings in Lascaux and he was asked, you know, what did you think? And he just said, We've learned nothing, mm. which is a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've learned a bit, Pablo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The other question we ask every guest is what is your favourite colour?
1: Now, I know you do because I listen and I I thought about this a lot, right? And I thought, oh, no, I've got a really smart answer to that, which is (laughs) that colours can never exist in isolation, right? So, like, if you have the same blue on black and then put it on white, it's a different blue. So I thought because oh, I'm so obsessed with the contextual relationships between colours. But then I thought, I, I, I'm going to compromise and say claret and blue, and Russell will know mm. why, because I'm a West Ham supporter. I am. A, I don't, you don't <laughs> start me on football. I have no idea about football, but I understand. But I, yes. uh, yeah, weirdly, Russell,
0: Russell really knows. No, but
2: oh, really, yeah, know.
1: well, he's messy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The thing on. is, is that <laughs> I sort of, maybe my love of, you know, my favourite colour probably is... Um, Color called Old Holland um, Cadmium Violet, which is also like the most expensive color. It's like it's like the color that only the king was allowed to wear in the Middle Ages, and if anybody wore it, they'd be executed. <sighs> it's like the the most expensive uh, color. And um, wasn't Cadmium the most toxic color paint? For yeah, a the while Cadmiums as well. are also really like kind of horrifically dangerous.
0: Let royalty wear it. Then. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what uh, is the best advice
2: that you have ever received when it comes to your art?
3: Oh, God.
1: Okay, I never received it, but I read it, and it was Nietzsche. <laughs> People are turning off now, I've like said that. <laughs> they probably turned up about an hour ago um Nietzsche said to he whom seeks advice remember you are always on the path of another and not yet on a path of your own so that would be my advice never seek advice Have your own advice.
0: We've never had that one. I love that.
1: (laughs) I agree with that. It's brilliant, isn't it?
0: And actually, that's so much, that actually sums up the work that you've been making recently because I feel like, I was saying to Russell, I just saw him in Derek Jarman's Blue in Margate the other day. And I said to Russell, it's one of the best performances Russ ever gave. And it was a voiceover. Because, (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not because of that let me fucking, fucking finish, finish a horrible human on. being um no because i feel like russell's getting to a point in his acting where he's starting to strip everything back mm. and he's losing himself and he's becoming the the words he's becoming like the role and i think that's what great art is i think often it's about getting to the you know the deepest part of oneself in order to connect the story or something yeah like it's a kind of really complicated thing but that's actually wh- why i also mentioned that book by christopher Neve, because i think it's it's got to do with like i love that idea of like the final moments of an artist's life and and what it all boils down to and that kind of studying of that and he he was talking a lot about intuition and memory and how you almost go back to where you started yeah or something. i think so it's that's like right. you which is all this idea of like stripping back all the layers, and that—that's that, what I like. That's why I mentioned in the intro as well about palimpsest, because it's this idea that you can you can write over history, you can add and erase, and but at the end that's of the day, that's the you painting kind of are... that
1: took me the longest amount of time—the one I gave that title to. That actually was about thirteen years. Wow. So there's a there's a belated <laughs> answer, but I mean Russell, you'll know this. I mean, you know, you're 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 the real artist in this conversation. It, you've got to feel it, haven't you? I mean, this is the bottom line with it. You can sell a painting for a million pounds or you can be in a Hollywood film or you can do all of these things, right? But it comes back to, like, what I'm saying about, uh, you know, like, Bonnard doing those paintings of his wife and then there's that story that when she died, they, like, had to come round and force him to give her body up because he was sort of still painting her. Because he was so kind of, like in the role Mm -hmm. and you know the thing again with de niro sort of saying no i'm not gonna wear prosthetics i'm gonna eat 10 hamburgers a day until i'm a big fat bastard and so that when i act i know what it's like to be kind of grotesque Mm because i can't understand the grotesque unless the grotesque possesses me And I, and I think that's all you can try and do when you're an artist. In a way, is kind of give yourself up to the to the feeling and, and hope that you're getting near it because it is like trying to hit a bullseye in a, in a in a pitch black room at times, and you're not quite sure whether you did or not. It's always hindsight that lets you maybe know that thing. Brilliant.
2: So where <laughs> can we? Um, you are on social media. I know that, some people um, can't yeah. follow you. You say Yeah, that. they'll
1: probably... They'll,
2: <laughs> I'll probably get loads of unfollows. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think this has actually been such a wonderful conversation. I think yeah. you are well, so I've had a, clear.
1: I've had a brilliant conversation and I think you two guys, I said this to you before, Russell, I think you guys are creating a really valuable archive that is really necessary. And, you know, I'm... i what I love about this new media that old farts like me didn't have when we were young is that I can, I can go online and I can watch the program that made me become an artist when I was 13, this program Mm. of Tom Keating on paintings. And there's only about nine of them. And if I ever kind of lose interest in painting, I go and I Google Tom Keating on painting and I watch that lovely old bugger do a, copy of a Monet because it was brilliant um it was brilliant forger and it's there it's online and you're you're adding to that in another way this rich pool of stuff that means that you know even though education has spoiled the potential for so many working class kids because of the way that it's been structured that there is this other thing that people can go to and they can they can learn an enormous amount and I'm very grateful that you've asked me to contribute towards that. And I hope my contribution has some sort of value. A hundred percent. Oh, I've
0: loved it. I've loved Brilliant. every minute. I've actually been really quiet because I've just been taking in everything. Yeah,
1: sorry. Say. Don't I go on? No, it's, it's no I love it. It's beautiful.
0: I, I could stay for another few hours. So, yeah. so uh, This is just part
1: one, mate. So your Instagram
2: is <laughs> at Tim Stoner. Is no, Stoner
1: Tim. No, it's Stoner Tim.
2: Stoner Tim, yeah. And then if, if people want to see your work in the flesh, you are in some collections that people can go and see you in is do you know or do you have exhibitions lined up or anything that um, people can
1: i what have i got lined up i did have a couple of things in the pipeline and for some reason i i've sort of <laughs> <Talked> <laughs> I've sort off. of forgotten about <laughs> <Right>. them um, <laughs> well i will obviously post them on my um, um instagram um if if they materialize but at the moment i'm You know, I'm really enjoying just being in my studio, having really interesting conversations with people like yourself and other artists. And really, you know, I kind of think all this is really about is that, you know, people talk about subject matter. People talk about all kinds of things around art. But we're alive. We can do something about it. We can add to the conversation. And actually, the best subject matter is the fact that that we're here now doing it and experiencing it and that for me is what it's really all about not the other stuff
0: well on that note uh (laughs) we'll be back very soon and um tim stoner thank you so much you, you can follow him at at stoner tim thank you. And uh, and you can also see images on our Instagram at TalkArt and Tim email me your postal address because I'm going to post you the book. Okay yeah, The um, not Because I think you're going to love it. Okay. I'm going to get you a signed copy because he, he's like 90 or something, the writer I think. No. And he's um he's had to sign them on book plates. Russ and I were at Hatchards and the oh, guy at yeah. Hatchards, Richard was showing us the book and he was like isn't it exquisite because he hates book plates the guy at Hatchards. No. But he was saying because this artist was so elderly he loved that he'd made the effort to like sign <laughs> the um you know the book plates yeah. it's really cool yeah. um i'm going to post it to you to send me to say thank you thank you <laughs> for this wonderful education i've loved it thank you. and um we'll be back very soon thanks, thanks for listening. everyone thank you. bye thanks,